Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the fact that we can approach you as our Father. And Lord, that that's not just uh, uh, in theory or anything. Lord, we are the children of the Most High God. And as we talked about in an earlier class, that is the way you talk about us in Scripture. We tend to continue to define ourselves on the basis of our old Adamic life rather than learning to define ourselves on the basis of who we are in Christ. Lord, we are your children. We are citizens of your realm. We are uh, sons of the Most High God. And the terms that you use for us go on and on. Lord, I thank you for the epistle to the church in Colossae and the bountiful truth that is found therein. Truths about who we are and what we have in Christ, but also, Lord, very importantly, truths about who Christ is. Lord, may we grow in our knowledge of him. Not just in knowing facts about him, but knowing him. May he become so much more than just our Savior. May he become our life. Now, Lord, I thank you that we have your Holy Spirit in us to instruct us this day. I pray, Lord, that he would just guide me, work through me, but then work in the hearts of each one you have brought here. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're continuing on with our study of Colossians. We've been away from it for three weeks now, so I feel I probably need to do a bit of review. Uh, One thing when I was teaching at the Bible Institute, which was kind of nice, is we taught it, uh, you know, I, I, I teach Colossians for three weeks and every day. And so... You didn't lose continuity generally from one day to the the next. Uh, You didn't have to do a lot of review. But when you start having gaps uh, in your time together, sometimes you do have to spend a little bit of time uh, reviewing to to get back to where uh, you kind of see the flow of the book or the flow of the letter. Because this is a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Colossae. And when they received it, uh, they probably didn't do like we're doing and and, uh, read it over 13 or 14 or 15 weeks. They sat down and they read it like a letter. And some of you may have been here uh, back when I tried to teach Colossians before Colossae. And uh, I think the first week I did an introduction. The second week I covered the whole letter in one class to try to give you an overview of the flow of the book before we went back and looked at the details. Didn't do that this time. This time we started out just uh, looking uh, at the details and things. Now, of course, I have this up here, and across the top is what I've said is the theme to this letter. When the uh, New Testament writers sat down to to write these letters there was a purpose in it it wasn't just hey I'm going to write a letter there was a reason why they wrote especially in that day when when writing materials were at a premium 
It wasn't like us with our computer where you can just type something out and there's really no expense to it. Uh, it was uh, quite a deal to, to write a letter like this. And so they had a reason, something that prompted them to do it, and something they were trying to accomplish. And we said that with Colossians, Paul, who had never once visited that church, but it was an offshoot of a church he had planted in Ephesus, he gets word about them. First of all, he hears about the church being formed. He hears about the early impact of the gospel in their lives. But then he gets word that false teachers had come on the scene. And they were, uh, you know, uh, leading many of the people astray. And uh, there's a lot of debate over the, um, what the actual false teaching was. We don't uh, know absolutely because uh, there are no extra biblical writings that tell us. Uh, there's been no archaeological uh, work done in that area. So we have to build off of what Paul says in response. And, uh, you know, as he writes. But we do know that uh, the teachings that were being presented indicated that, hey, Christ isn't enough. It's all well and good that you've accepted Christ as your Savior, but you need more. And so Paul sets out to set, the, the, uh, the, uh, set them straight on this. And in this letter, the theme, that statement that pulls the whole letter together, everything in this letter in some way ties back to this. And it is the fact that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. Oh, okay. Okay, the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ. You don't need anything other than Christ to live your Christian life. And the reason being is that he is preeminent over all things. He's above everything else. And very soon, probably next week it'll be, in, uh, as we move into this letter, Paul is going to move in a section that really begins to focus on Christ. Who he is. And hopefully it will deepen our understanding of who he is. Because all too often when, when uh, Christians think of Christ, they recognize Him as their Savior. But they don't recognize how much more is involved in who He is. And that's what we'll, we'll get into then. Won't quite get to that yet uh, this week. Now, of course, we started out with the opening salutation. And we saw, again, that these aren't just perfunctory words. Uh, they really set the stage. Paul introduces himself. He introduces his audience. He greets them with grace and peace. And we talked a bit about this. Some people want to say, well, those, that's just a greeting. No, it's more than that. These are words that are at the very heart of Paul's message. If there's anyone of all the apostles that 
truly loved the grace of God, it was Paul, who spent so much of his life under the law. And he speaks of grace over and over again. And if we really understand the grace of God, it brings peace. It really does. And I made this statement that week that, you know, if your view of the Christian life leaves you in turmoil, if your view of the Christian life leaves you lacking peace, you really don't understand the grace of God. Because if you understand His grace, it will bring peace. My life has been a journey getting to know the grace of God. First of all, getting to know Him. But coming to understand His grace. And it's made such a difference. You know, when we were in Ireland, one of the early couples that we met with came to us and said, you know, we'd really like for you to meet with us and really help us understand the Christian life because you are the first Christians we've ever met that seem to enjoy the Christian life. Now that's not meant to in any way hold us up. That is a sad, sad, sad commentary. That most Christians that they had seen didn't really seem to enjoy the Christian life. And it's not that everything for Joe and it may have been fun and games. We've had our hard times. But by and large, we enjoy the Christian life. But that started with us understanding the grace of God. Now, after this introduction... Paul enters into this section where he speaks of his prayers for the uh, Colossian believers. And I pointed out that even these prayers fit under this theme because in his prayers he reflects the fact that of the sufficiency of Christ. That everything they needed was in Christ. And he started out with prayers of thanksgiving and we dealt with that uh, the last time we met. And he talked about giving thanks for them from the time he heard about them because he heard the impact that the gospel had had in their lives. And I did talk about the fact at that point that as you read through the New Testament, what I believe becomes clear is that when they talk about the gospel, there's more depth to it than when we talk about it. You ask the average Christian, what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus died for our sins and if we put our faith in him, we'll go to heaven when we die. That is part of the gospel. And it's a significant foundational part of the gospel. But just knowing that isn't going to change your life. It'll change your destiny. And it will provide the, the foundation for a changed life. But there's so much more. The word gospel means good news. Yes, it is good news that Christ died for my sin. 
And that if I put my confidence in his finished work, I can go to heaven when I die. But it's also good news that I died with him. Judicially speaking, I died with him. I was buried with him. I was raised with him. I have new life with him. It's good news that I am complete in Christ and lacking nothing. It's good news that I have been given uh, everything necessary for life and godliness. It's good news that I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly. But most Christians do not grasp those concepts. It's good news that I have a whole new life in Christ. But the majority of Christians spend their time here on earth trying to fix the old one. They read what the new one can look like. And they try to make the old one look like that. And it's just frustration. And we'll get more into that as we get deeper into this letter. We'll talk about the issue of putting off the old and putting on the new. And at times, being able to distinguish between the two. And not wasting your life trying to fix what God said He doesn't want to fix. I used to tell my students, you know, we have a lot of little statements in Christendom that aren't truly accurate. I hear all the time, God wants you to give your life to Him. No, He doesn't. Your life stinks. He doesn't want it. God wants you to embrace His life. He wants you to give yourself to Him. But He doesn't want your life. Your life is damaged goods. Your life is irreparable. And why try to fix it when you've got something new in Christ? And again, we'll get into that as we get deeper into this letter. And that is so critical for Christians to understand. So, you know, Paul, you know, had heard of the impact of the gospel. These believers had understood so much about Christ and it had changed their lives. And Paul reminds them of that by his prayer. You know, that, look, you know, Stop and think about what it is that has thus far transformed you. It has been your relationship with Christ. It hasn't been something else. Now today we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 1. Where we shift from Paul's prayer of thanksgiving to his prayer of intercession. And he shares with us the things that he was praying on behalf of the Colossian believers. And as we look at this petition, and if you look at some of his other petitions elsewhere in Scripture, it gives you some really good insights into what Paul thought was important. What Paul prayed about. And he starts out, he says, for this reason also. What reason? 
he's going back to, he's just talked about them hearing the gospel and the impact it has had on them. <clears throat> and so he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, the impact of the gospel in their lives, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, our prayers so often revolve around material and physical needs and circumstances. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about those things. But oftentimes that's all our prayers are. You know, we're, we're dealing with this circumstance in life. We're dealing with this physical issue. Or we're praying for this one and some, you know, healing for this one or a job for that one. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for that. But those are not the things that tended to mark Paul's prayers. Here, Paul says, look, as I have heard about the, the impact of the gospel in your lives, from the day I heard of it, I began praying for you that you may be filled with a knowledge of his will with spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, my prayer for you is that you would have a spiritual understanding in your daily walk of the will of God. That's what I want for you. And so his intercessory prayer for them began with an understanding of their spiritual possessions. Now Paul clearly understood that in Christ, every believer there in Colossae, every believer in the world, already had everything necessary for a victorious Christian life. Everything to experience victory. It was all there. In fact, when we get over to chapter 3, Paul will point out that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we're complete in Him. There is not one thing that I need for the Christian life that's not already mine. There's not one thing for the Christian life that you need that's not already yours. And you might say, well, it sure doesn't seem that way. I have these struggles. I have these failures. I don't feel very complete. I don't look very complete. It's not that you need additional spiritual provision. It's that you need uh, additional spiritual understanding. You need to understand what you have. And I used to use the example at... at school. I think I used it in our green letter study, but I, I'd say, you know, a lot of the students, uh, man, they, they worked their way through school, and, and at the school there was no borrowing money for it. You paid all the way through. And there were a lot of students who struggled, you know, to come up with their, their uh, uh, tuition on a, a monthly basis. 
And I said, look, what if one of you had, uh, you know, was struggling to come up with money and a very rich relative died and left you their vast fortune? It would not change your life one bit if you didn't know it. If no one told you that they, they had left you this vast fortune, it wouldn't do you a lick of good. It also wouldn't do you any good if you didn't believe it. <laughs> if somebody came and said, look, you had this uncle who had millions and he left it all to you, and you say, oh, I don't believe it. Wouldn't do you any good. For to do you good, first you, some, you had to come to know it. Secondly, you had to come to believe it. And then you had to begin learning how to appropriate it. You'd have to learn where the money is. This bank, you know, uh, this investment. You would have to find and take hold of it. And so it is with Christian life. We struggle and act like we have nothing. Some of it's because we don't know what we have. We've never really looked and seen all that we have in Christ. And then sometimes we read these passages and we don't really believe it. You know, we, we read, you know, that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and that we are complete in Him. Do we believe that? Or do we still think we need something we're lacking? You know, when we read in Ephesians that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, do we believe that? And if we believe it, do we start searching the scriptures to see what those blessings are that we have? When Peter tells us that we have ne everything necessary for life and godliness, do we believe him? And do we begin searching the scriptures to see what we have for life? To see what makes it possible for us to live a godly existence here on earth. Paul says, look, ever since I heard of your response to the gospel, I have not ceased to pray and ask you to that you would be filled with his spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that you would be filled with a knowledge of God's will. So many of the problems we face in Christianity today come from a failure to really understand the will of God. And sometimes simply a willingness to do the will of God. I often uh, remember uh, listening to a message by Linwood Bowden who used to be pastor of Jackson Bible Church which is now Grace. Linwood's with the Lord now. Dear, very dear brother, he was talking about the will of God. He said, you know, people talk about searching for the will of God. He says, I'm here to tell you it's not lost. God hasn't lost his will. <clears throat> but he said the biggest problem when we're saying we're searching for the will of God is oftentimes 
we're looking for some aspect of his will that still isn't clear while we ignore the vast majority of his will that's already spelled out for us in his word. The vast majority of God's will is in this book. And we don't want to do at times what he's told us to do. And then we want him to show us his will in in other areas. I guarantee you, if you respond to what he has shown you, he will make clear the rest. God is very good at his job. He will make his will clear. But it starts with us being willing to respond to what he has already revealed. And then being willing to do it. I used to tell my students, you know, a lot of times, again, we keep saying we're searching for God's will when we're looking for plan B. We kind of know deep in our hearts what plan A is, but we don't want plan A. We want plan B. I'm here to tell you God doesn't have a plan B. Don't waste your time waiting for it. He has one plan. Take it and go with it. I had to learn that kind of the hard way. You know, I've shared with people that, you know, uh, we were in the ministry at FOA for 14 years. I think I stayed probably about five years too long because I was struggling against the Lord. My dad wanted me to take over. The board of directors wanted me to take over, but I knew that wasn't God's plan for me. And I kept praying that the Lord would give me the gifting I felt I needed to to be what they wanted me to be. And then getting frustrated with him, with God, getting frustrated with my dad, getting frustrated with the board. And finally I had to wake up and say, look, the Lord has gifted me for what he wants me to do. And I just need to be open to what he wants. It was then that we finally decided to walk away from FOA. And the Lord's taken us on quite a journey. He's blessed us with such wonderful ministry opportunities throughout our life. And I had to learn the hard way that God had a plan for me and I just needed to be willing to follow him. And when I was, he opened the doors. He guided the steps. He made it clear where he wanted us. And he's guided us every step of the way. Now Paul prayed that they would know, have a knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And as I said, a lot of problems in Christianity today from not really under, come from not really understanding the will of God. A lot of times we don't understand what God's will is for this world. Unfortunately, many Christians think God wants us to fix this world. I'm here to tell you he doesn't. This world is one day going to go up in smoke. God is going to one day recreate it. And before that, there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be a a kingdom in which in Daniel it says he's not going to use anything of this present world system. It's going to be all new. 
God's not trying to fix the world. He's trying to save people out of the world. And at times, we don't understand his plan for the world, but we don't understand his plan for us in this world. We're to be those who reflect the Lord Jesus Christ to the world around us. Those who are used by him to reach out to those who are lost and dying to rescue them. And because believers often lack understanding in these these areas, they spend a lot of their lives and devote many of their energies to accomplish things that outwardly look very, very good but aren't really pleasing to God. God wants us to do his will. Not what we think his will should be. I've used the example, I've said it's like a parent going off for the day and telling his child that he wants the, uh, their room clean when they come home. And the child decides, I'm going to fix dinner. And they fix di- this nice dinner, and the pa- and the, but the room's still a mess. And the parent comes home, and the parent's not happy. Why? Because they didn't do what they were to- told to do. It might be all well and good. They wanted to make a nice dinner, but that wasn't they were, what they were told to do. If they, made, if they cleaned their room first and did it, then that probably would have been cream. You know, that would have been nice. But we have all these things we think God should want us to do, and we ignore what he tells us in his word. And so Paul tells us that the reason he was praying for spiritual understanding of God's will was so that they might live a life worthy of one who belonged to him. A life that truly pleased him. Verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, we as believers need to know and understand that there's a lot more to pleasing God than just having zeal for Him. Or just feeling emotional love for Him. Now, motive is, 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 I think, important, but it's not an end in itself. You know, many have this misconception that as long as I'm sincere in what I do, God's going to be pleased. You can be sincerely wrong. And the history of the nation of Israel proves that. Romans 10.2, Paul, in speaking about that nation, said, They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And Paul knew this firsthand himself. As a Pharisee, he was incredibly zealous for God. And yet when Christ met him on the road to Damascus, what did Paul, uh, Christ say to Paul? Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul thought he was being zealous for God, and yet he was persecuting God the Son. By persecuting his body, the church. 
All the zeal in the world didn't enable him to please God. And so, here was Paul. He was desirous that the Colossian believers lived life that, uh, lives that were pleasing to God. And so his prayers began where a life pleasing with God begins. With God's will. And as he prayed regarding God's will, he went on to pray that they might be fruitful in every good work. Now note the wording here. Paul doesn't say that his desire was that they begin doing good works. Doing good works flows from the flesh. Fleshly nature. Paul prayed that good works would be a fruit in their life. A fruit flowing from their relationship with God. These are the only good works pleasing to him. Of course, Christ spoke of this in the eve before his crucifixion, in the upper room discourse, in the vine, actually more specifically the vine and branches discourse in John 15. He says, I am the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. <clears throat> every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that he bears fruit he prunes that he may um, bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Christ says, look, you want to bear fruit? It starts with your relationship with me. The branch of the vine doesn't sit there and think, I gotta bear fruit, I gotta bear fruit, I gotta bear fruit. No. It lives attached to the vine. And the fruit of the vine flows from it. I assure you that if you grow in your relationship with Christ, if you truly come to know Him as life, your life here on earth will produce fruit. His life in you will produce fruit. It is assured. If you want to see fruit, start where it, where it flows from, from your relationship with Him. Now, along with this increased fruitfulness, Paul also prayed that they might increase in their knowledge of God. Now, it's important to understand... What it means to know the Lord. Again, like the gospel, we have kind of dumbed it down the word know. If I were to ask in a group this size, how many of you know the Lord? Most of you would raise your hand. Because as far as you're concerned, knowing the Lord means you're saved. Yet in Philippians 3.10... Paul says, I want to know him. This is Paul. So was Paul not saved? Paul doesn't say, I know him. He says, I want to know him.
See, this was one of his highest priorities for himself, and it was also one of his high priorities as he prayed for the church in Colossae. Knowing God isn't simply recognizing Christ as your Savior. That's the beginning of knowledge. If you were to ask me if I know the Lord, I would say I want to know Him and I'm growing in my knowledge of Him, but I still have a long ways to go in knowing Him. And the more we come to know Him, the more He transforms us. Of course, in John's first epistle, 1 John, he talks a lot about knowing God. And he's writing that in response to false teachers who claim to have this higher knowledge that everybody needed. Only thing is their lives demonstrated they didn't have it. Now, a lot of people read through 1 John and then they get to doubt in their salvation because John says that if you knew God, this would be the result. He's not talking about being saved. He's saying if you truly had this higher knowledge of God, if you really knew God as He is, it would transform your life. You wouldn't go on the way you're going on. And so he's praying here for their fruit bearing, but he's praying for a growing knowledge of God. And our ability to bear fruit is directly proportional, I believe, to our knowledge of God. Now you've got to make, uh, uh, be careful that you don't make the mistake uh, that knowing a lot about God is knowing Him. Again, at school, you know, I'd have classes of about 70 students. And, you know, if they'd been there more than a few weeks. And I ask them, how many of you know Jonelle? Everybody raised their hand. Why? Because she was the woman who brought goodies to my classes on Fridays. They had a very limited knowledge of Jonelle. <laughs> Others that came to our green letter study in our house and spent time talking with her, they knew her a bit better. Others that she met with one-on-one -on -one knew her even a little deeper. None of them knew her like I know her. And many Christians think they know God because they know a lot about Him. Now certainly you've got to know about Him before you can know Him. But knowing about Him is not enough. If I have in my life seen, I think, one sad reality with a lot of Bible churches is that there's a lot of people who know a lot about God but have never really got to know Him. Oh, they can spout off all sorts of facts about Him. But have they really, really met Him in a deep, personal, intimate, life-changing way? They think knowing a lot of facts out of this book is what's important rather than knowing the one behind the book. On my first day with, with uh, the freshmen, I always gave them a little bookmark. I said, put this in your Bible and look at it pretty regularly. 
It's a quote by a fellow by the name of Norman Dowdy. It says, come to the Word for one purpose, and that is to meet the Lord. Not to get your mind crammed full of things about the sacred Word, but come to it to meet the Lord. Make it a medium not of biblical scholarship, but of fellowship with Christ. Behold the Lord. If your Bible study isn't bringing you into a deeper knowledge of God, you're going about it wrong. As I've pointed out, I think, the other week, all too often people make this book about themselves. I've got problems, so I'm going to go to the Bible and find a way to fix them. And then they wonder why their problems don't get fixed. I guarantee you, if you go to this book to meet the Lord, He will transform you. you re- I have yet to, to know anybody who truly came to know God in a deep, intimate, personal way that wasn't changed by Him. His mind becomes your mind. His heart becomes your heart. His ways gradually become your ways. But it starts with getting to know Him. Now another important ingredient of walking worthy of the Lord for which Paul prayed was strength. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Paul prayed that they might be strengthened with all might. But he makes clear whose might it's going to be. It's going to be God's. A lot of Christians pray, Lord, give me more strength. And then they wonder why he doesn't. Paul discovered that it was in his weakness he was made strong. And you'll learn in your Christian life, if you think you need more strength, God's going to make you weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. Until you come to the place where you realize, Lord, I need your strength. I need your strength. We want our own strength. We want our own victory. We want all this stuff to be our own. And yet, everything we need is in Christ. The strength is in Christ. The victory is in Christ. The freedom is in Christ. The life is in Christ. And the more we learn to live there, the more we experience all these things. And along with strength, we're about out of time, but Paul prayed for them to attain patience in the quality of being long-suffering. And that these two characteristics be accompanied by joyful thanksgiving. And I think this is an important combination. It's what sets us apart from the world. You know, apart from the hope that comes to us in Christ, it's really not possible Without hope, patience and long-suffering take the form of toughing it out. You know, just kind of a fatalistic attitude. There's nothing I can do about it, so I'm going to make the best of it. The hope we have in Christ makes it possible for us to uh, have patience and long-suffering 
and yet be joyfully thankful in the midst of it. Not necessarily joyful for the circumstance, but joyful knowing where it's taking us. As we go through the trials of life, to know that God is working all these things towards the the good of conforming us to the image of Christ. It's all moving us in that direction. I can find joy in the, the circumstances knowing that this is not wasted pain. It's being used by God to move me towards a wonderful goal. And that's why he said, you know, to be long-suffering, but with this joyful thanksgiving. Just like thanksgiving marked Paul's prayer life. He wanted it to mark the Colossian believer's prayer life. And I know when we used to do the principles of spiritual growth study with our students, about halfway through the year, a lot of the students would tell me, This has really changed my prayer life. I used to spend most of my prayer time asking God for things. Now I spend a large percentage of my prayer life thanking Him. Because I've come to see the riches of His grace. And there's so much to be thankful for. And that was Paul's desire for them. Now that brings us to a good stopping place. At this point, we'll leave this section of the letter behind. And we'll move into the section where Paul really begins to describe for us who Jesus is. And bring us into a much deeper understanding of him. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for Christ. Everything we are, everything we have is found in him. Lord, may we truly make it our goal, like Paul, to get to know him. And Lord, may we experience the power of his resurrection. Lord, and, and the fellowship of his suffering. Lord, we again thank you uh, just for the privilege of calling you Father. The privilege of being part of the bride of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that one day soon he's going to call us home to spend eternity with him. But Lord, until that day comes, may we grow in our knowledge of him. And Lord, may we uh, reflect him to a lost and dying world who need to see him. First, in his precious name we pray. Amen.